Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast which I'm recording at eight in the morning and thus without any of my colleagues. Uh, and I'm joined today to discuss the technological aspects of the border regime by Austin Coker of Syracuse University and by Jake Weiner of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Hi, guys. Morning. How are you doing, James? I'm good. Um, I'm very excited to talk more border stuff. I like covering this, even though it's sometimes terrible. Uh, So what I wanted to start off with is, I think our listeners will be familiar with CBP-1, right? The most cursed cell phone app uh, of all time. And both of you have written a lot and very uh, insightfully about CBP-1. So I thought we could kind of do a little bit of a breakdown of uh, A, the issues with it, and B, like the issues with it as an app, and then the the fact that we're using an app being a problem inherently. Uh, So... Perhaps we could start with, I know, uh, Jake, you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit about the design of the app so and the process of sort of commissioning it and making it. Should we start there? Yeah, and I think this story is pretty interesting and unique um, because CBP1 was built in-house by a small team at um, the Office of Field Operations oh, in wow. CBP. Yeah, which is, it's unique. Like there yeah. are, there's one other app that they built and I don't really know of other mobile apps that have been rolled out with anything close to the size of CBP-1 that have been designed by a government agency. Yeah, that's kind of an odd choice. You know, conceptually, it's not something I'm critical of. Like, I think if we're going to have a government that's providing services, it's good for them to do things in-house. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. It means you're not relying on third parties who are able to like use information from the app and benefit off of it. Um, (laughs) But it does mean you need the institutional competency to be able to design an app. Um, And so to just like provide a quick history, basically a CBP one app was built off of the framework of an older app called CBP Rome. That app was used just for people boating on the great lakes 
because technically if you go like boating on Lake Michigan, you will leave the United States if you chase a fish over the, the boundary <laughs> to Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah. And CBP felt that it was very important that people who did that reported leaving and coming back into the United States. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> questionable. Yeah. But they, they built an app to let people do that. Um, and the framework for that app used a GPS ping to verify when you're back in the US. Okay. So this is small app you know i don't think they encountered too many problems with it because you right. have maybe a couple hundred visitors a day um and on that framework they built out cbp1 to do a couple of things um it's used for folks like customs folks so if you're importing goods into the country you can do some of that reporting through cbp1 and also use it to apply for the and obtain the i-94 travel form which is the form that like most folks coming to the United States are going to need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then critically for, for our uses is that if you are applying for asylum, you can use it to schedule an appointment. Yeah, that's been the bulk of my reporting on it. Is that the bulk of its use? I think so, yeah. Okay. And so that's, I'm still blown away by the fact they designed it in-house. It's, it's crazy. Uh, did you ever find the job, the job postings for the people who designed it? Or did they just like get some people who were good at IT to kind of take a swing at it. The, so as far as I know from, you know, I've talked to one of the people involved in the creation. Mm-hmm. I think Austin has as well. Um, my understanding is that it was like an in-house team that already existed. Okay. But I, Austin, you may be able to clarify that. Yeah, that's my understanding too. I think they have a, a technology team within the agency that uh, is using technology in, in, in various ways. We, I, I don't think we have a full understanding of the scope mm-hmm. of their responsibilities and the work that they've done. I think, to Jake's point, it is quite interesting that they produce something for the public. Um, it's not unusual, of course, for uh, large agencies to have teams in-house that, that deal with all of the general technological challenges that, that every agency in 2023 yeah. faces you know, databases, you know, keeping government cell phones working and secure and all of that, all of that kind of thing. But a lot of the things that are public facing from federal agencies tend to be contracted out to a private vendor in yeah. some way. Uh, so this is, it's quite unique. And, and, um, uh, yeah, but I don't think we have a full scope of, of okay. what they, what they are, aren't producing in house. Yeah, they, uh, that's interesting because they, they heavily rely on uh, outside contractors for so much of that. Like there's a whole industry that, you know, starts here in San Diego and goes over to Tucson uh, and uh, probably further into New Mexico of, of people providing surveillance technology to Border Patrol. And, it's, uh, and then, you know, goes over to the West Bank too, where, where lots, lots of it can be seen. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Having talked about the uh, their sort of unique approach to design, it's probably a good idea to then talk about the implementation of Zap and it's kind of lackluster as an understatement. It just fucking sucks. It's terrible. Um, so, like, what in what many ways has it been unfit for the purpose that it's supposed to do? So I guess first we can talk about its technological inadequacies and then more broadly about why this isn't a problem you can really solve with an app on a telephone that needs broadband and Wi-Fi. Yeah, so I'll start by saying that I think a lot of what's happening with the problem the CBP1 app is institutional blindness. So the people who design the app, I genuinely think want it to work well. And I think they're simply not asking the questions that you need to be asking and when you design an app like this, which is who's really going to be using it? What are their needs? What technology, what wireless services do they what phones are they using? Basically, like if you're someone on the southern border with very little money and probably an outdated phone, yes, are you going to be able to use this app? Not a great camera. Um, and so I think, the first place to start with that is simply the fact that the app requires a strong Wi-Fi or cell signal to use, which is not always present. Um, and I think Austin has, has some good insight into the problems with insufficient Wi-Fi. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think what, some of what's interesting here is the way not only that the app relies on Wi-Fi, but then the kind of uh, real-world social consequences here. Um, for how people then try to cope with these problems. I want to take one step back just really quickly and and discuss the world that CBP was dropped into because Mm -hmm. there's some important context here. So as I know you've already covered, James, um, you know, over the past three years, uh, the the dominant uh, border control policy was Title 42, Mm -hmm. a a COVID-era policy that uh, was purportedly... um, uh, motivated by concerns about public health. This is where Title 42 comes from. Title 42 of the U.S. Code pertains to issues of questions of public health. It's not an immigration policy. It, it was a public health policy, although detailed reporting um, has, I think, pretty well established that it was more of a political uh, a moment of political opportunism rather than a legitimate public health concern. But regardless, that policy uh, allowed Customs and Border Protection to effectively turn back anyone who arrived at the border, whether they attempted to cross unlawfully or not. And the primary human rights concern here was uh, uh, people who were seeking asylum, uh, which is their right to do. 
Um, one of the uh, aspects of Title 42 was that there was a, a rare exemption clause built in that allowed people who were you know, particularly vulnerable or particular humanitarian concern um, to, uh, to attempt uh, to effectively apply for this kind of exemption. And until January of this year, that process was run by nonprofit organizations. CBP had this sort of informal outsourced system where NGOs on the Mexican side of the border would effectively conduct massive amounts of intake and prioritization and triaging of these cases um, and then submit you know, names to CBP to, um, to allow people to come through ports of entry. CBP-1 effectively replaced that system in January, which meant that instead of migrants going through the NGOs, uh, they would have to download this app, fill out the information and send it in. This is really important to mention because the groundwork was actually laid by a tremendous amount of effectively unpaid labor um, on, on the backs of NGOs on the southern side of the border. And, you know, it, it is it is fair and accurate to say that this was an extremely imperfect system um, and that there were absolutely, you know, yeah. significant issues with this. Um, but one of the interesting things is that the role that NGOs played um, meant that people coming and seeking asylum would then, in in some ways, be potentially connected with a broader network mm-hmm. of of NGO support services, advocacy, and so forth. So the introduction of CBP one purportedly bypassed the work of NGOs in screening uh, people for the exemption process. However, NGOs still ended up performing all this kind of invisible labor because they're the ones who effectively we're working with migrants to make Wi-Fi available. It, and it's not just Wi-Fi, it's actually charging your phone. When I visited mm-hmm. shelters and camps on the southern side of the border at the end of 2022, it, it, a, a big part of the having camps and shelters was actually providing electricity. Um, you know, when I was there, and I know others have reported on this, James, I'm sure you've seen this too, you know, people would be huddled around the outlets yeah. because uh, they needed to charge their phone. If their phone didn't work, uh, if their phone wasn't charged, they didn't have access prior to CBP-1. This was already a challenge because the primary form of communication with CBP was phone calls. They would Individuals would get phone calls. In fact, I interviewed a Russian family on the uh, Mexican side of the border in Matamoros in November, last November, and the family now... And many of the other migrants I spoke with, and this was also true for many migrants, by the way, the families, uh, typically the wife and children, if they were a family unit, would stay either in a hotel or a shelter or someplace that was more safe. And then the men would effectively have nights on the street where they could actually get cell phone coverage mm-hmm. and things like that. So CBP-1 introduced all of these kind of technological demands. It's not that they weren't there before. But I I think it's a different matter when you go from interacting with a network of NGOs to saying now you're actually interacting with the U.S. government and this is the only way that you're going to be able to enter the country. I think those demands um, were were quite high and they've, they've clearly had some tremendously negative impacts for migrants trying to come through that way. Yeah, definitely. I know I have one here, but we bought so many of these like solar powered charging brick things and distributed those but uh i have so many photos of people's hands reaching through the wall and people trying to charge their phone on the other side of the wall you know and it's been 
a big demand for a while, but it's certainly when CBP were detaining people in places where they didn't have power and then expecting them to also communicate using their telephones, uh, that became a particularly sort of ridiculous issue. Um, very upsetting to see it like done like that. So, yeah, this this app really isn't a solution for the problem we're facing, which is, as you said, like a three-year backlog on people who have legitimate asylum claims being able to make those asylum claims. And I guess, can we talk about who it favours in, you know, in implementing this system as a catch-all, right? Not an option, but the option. Who does that favour and who does it not? Yeah, before we get there, I think it might be helpful to just run through like what it is like to use CBP one. Oh yeah, let's all talk the steps about you have to yeah, go through because it is a yeah, and uh, that's I and when you're thinking about that, think that every step is a potential failure point, right? Mm-hmm. Every step you could have a glitch, and anytime you have a glitch happen, it's going to kick you out of the app, and you have to restart. Yeah. So if you're on the southern border, you need to apply for asylum. You've been walking for months from Venezuela, Guatemala, et cetera. You got your phone. First thing you have to do is log into the app through login.gov. That's the single sign-on service that many government agencies use. Uh, it works fairly well, but you got you need, so you register yourself a profile. Then you're going to navigate over. Hopefully you speak one of the languages that CBP1 is available in. As of now, I believe that's English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole, although they may have added a new language recently. Um, you find the right place on the app, not always super clear to submit your asylum application and try and schedule an appointment. And then you're gonna have to fill out a ton of information. You're giving CVP your name, addresses, people you know in the US, You know, big form to fill out. Um, including often information on like how vulnerable you are. So like, are you pregnant? Are you disabled? Have you been threatened in Mexico? Information that they you know want to use to prioritize you, hopefully. Um, and then you're going to need to take a facial photograph that's going to go into CVP and Department of Homeland Security's databases. It'll be run against facial recognition searches um, that they populate with like this massive facial recognition system, the Traveler Verification Service um, that can flag people who are on CBP's target list, TSA's target list. Um, You could be wrongfully flagged by that because facial (laughs) recognition is not a perfect technology. Mm -hmm. You're also going to take a facial liveness scan. It's related to facial recognition, but it is different. It's a different technology and it is untested. Um, There's there's been no government agency that has evaluated facial liveness or bias. Um, and that basically is trying to figure out, are you a real person or are you like a picture of James that you're holding up? Oh, yeah. Because you're you know, trying <laughs> yeah, to get yeah. James a, yeah. an appointment and then sell it to him later or something. Mm-hmm. Um, do the facial liveness scan. That's been the sticking point where folks with darker skin and indigenous folks have not been able to get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about that a little later. Yeah. You're also going to do a GPS ping. So your phone pulling from both cell towers and GPS data is going to try and establish your location and send it to CBP. That can create problems if you're pinging off a US cell tower. Suddenly it's less reliable. It might look like you're in the US. And once you get through all these steps, then you're able to submit your information and you're in a lottery for whether or not you get an appointment. 
Great. Uh, yeah, let, let's the photo thing. I think has been covered. I don't, maybe I perceive it to have been covered extensively because this is what I do. But uh, I think maybe some people aren't aware of the complete inadequacy mm-hmm. of those facial liveness scans. And I know some nonprofits in Tijuana have light booths, which, which can help with that. But it's not, you know, it, it's again like that money could be doing something more useful, right? And then making like a like an Instagram booth for people who just want to use the exercise their legal right to claim asylum. So let's talk about that that technology yeah. and how it's not working. Yeah, I think one really important factor here, and the reason I wanted to paint some of the context was, um, and, and, and partly it's selfish, because as a geographer, I'm always very you know eager to um, evangelize about the importance of understanding social geography uh, for thinking about yeah. questions of you know human rights and asylum and immigration. So the facial liveness test is a great example of that. So, um, you know, it's hard to see this unless you've been on the ground in some of these places. Um, But, you know, again, just a historical thing that I think will be pretty non-controversial. Anti-black racism is something that's existed for a very long time. It's not just in the United States. It's around the world, obviously. Um, Not everywhere, but but you know, obviously through colonialism, through settler colonialism and so forth, it's really shaped not just anti-Black racism, but anti-Black racism itself has produced many of the geographies that we have from redlining, segregation, educational acts, all kinds of things. The way that the social world looks today is already shaped um, by these issues of racism. What that then means is questions like um, who has access to cell phone towers and fast Wi-Fi, and who can afford up-to-date smartphones that can meet all of the, the mm-hmm. threshold of require the technological requirements uh, to use this use this app and use the software is already distributed and 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 fractured by questions of race and identity. What that means is, even if the facial liveness test worked perfectly, and uh, and, and there were no issues with the software, which is not true, but let's even just assume that it is still true that access to that technology and software is already structured by race. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed, you know, having spent time along the border was just how much even in some of the shelters and where black and African migrants uh, had access to shelter was itself uh, much tended to be more pushed to the out, outside yeah. of the where you're, where you're less likely to get good cell phone coverage, less likely to have electricity, much more likely that the roads, even where I visited, were not paved. And I was there when it was raining um, yeah. in, in Reynosa one day. And, you know, oh, even yeah, get right. some of the places where African migrants and African families mm-hmm. uh, were staying and black migrants, by the way, from Latin America. Let's just remind everyone that there are uh, black yeah. Latinos living in Latin America. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're also pushed, you know, more to the outskirts. And as a result of that, um, those factors contributed to access. So it wasn't just um, issues with the software itself, which may be there. It's hard for me to evaluate. It's not, you know, because it's not like we've done our own evaluation of that. Um, but it's also all of those contextual factors. And I just want to make a fine point on this. We know this already. CBP should understand that already and understand the various social factors that impact access. So simply saying, for instance, if one wanted to take a defensive position and say, well, look, we ran the test, the software works as intended, there's no racial bias in the software, that doesn't get CBP out of the responsibility of saying, yes, but you absolutely 
had all the information and, and a reasonable person should have known that this the access to this app had these kind of technological requirements and there were then that access was not evenly distributed yeah i think it's really important that you said that actually because a lot of reporters it does get reported on there are people doing great work but like sometimes it gets missed because african migrants might not speak spanish black african migrants uh you know, might, and a lot of reporters don't have the language skills to talk to people in. I worked with a fixer who spoke um, Romo and Tigrayan and, and a lot of other, like five or six other languages. And, and that helped to get me an insight into the, the very difficult situation that lots of African people face. And, you know, the, their isolation, the relative lack of resources, even in what's a pretty resource sparse setting for everyone. And uh, I know Haitian people, I've spoken to a lot of Haitian people, um, Plus, then you add that, like, if I think about last month, the languages which I was able with through friends, through translation to speak to people with, you know, Vietnamese, Comanche, which is a dialect of Kurdish, French, right? Swahili, Spanish, evidently, Dutch. Aside from Spanish, those are not covered. Maybe if you're French, you can... I think it would be still hard to, to work in Haitian Creole if you, if you spoke sort of more um, mainland French. Uh, those are not covered by the app, right? So you have to find a way to access that with, via translation. And then it's very, the information makes you incredibly vulnerable to whom, whomever, if, if you're asking someone to share, right? Like it's a, imperfect, it's, it's not a sufficient way to describe it, but it, it's an extremely flawed system. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To Jake's point, like, I'm also, like, kind of open-minded about, you know, about using an app like this. I mean, there's, I mean, Jake's right. I mean, if you're going to have a government in the, in 2023, like having some reasonably up-to-date ways to do things is not an unreasonable expectation, but there's just so many blatantly obvious 
uh, sort of shortcomings that are not difficult to identify um, mm -hmm. in preparing this app and understanding what people are likely to need. So to have those gaps and then also to roll out the app um, at a time when the, pol the same policy announcement that rolls out this app is also a policy announcement that says this is the only way to do it. I mean, imagine if like your new policy for like healthcare for some you know particular healthcare you know thing was like you have to go through this route. And we know that eighty percent of people aren't going to be able to use this, but now this is the only treatment you have an option for. I mean, that would be that is just strange. I I think I think one thing to just think about creatively here is. I can imagine a phased rollout of this where they did improve it over time, mm -hmm. but there were adequate, you know, uh, uh, outlets for people who didn't fit into the categories that that they had built into the app. Um, and I think I think that would be a more complex and more nuanced and maybe a more, more interesting way to do it. I just don't think I, I don't think it was rolled out responsibly in that way. Yeah, yeah I doubt. think we should be honest that beta testing an app on hundreds of thousands of the most vulnerable people in the world <laughs> is incredibly yeah. irresponsible. Yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah, it's just cruel. It's not uh, in any way appropriate. So <laughs> I guess uh, we've talked a lot about this app. Let's talk about, let's say you're fortunate enough to get an asylum appointment here to enter the US. Um, you would then, in most cases, enter something which is called CBP's Alternatives to Detention System. ISIS. ISIS, sorry, yeah, you're right. Let's explain a little bit, like, why is it an alternative to detention? What, what, why would one be detained? You haven't, in theory, done anything wrong. Well, in, in many people's perspective, haven't done anything wrong, I guess. Uh, and then what, what does ATD mean? And then we can get into some of the uh, privacy issues and the way that it affects not just migrants, but, but also everyone. Yeah, one thing before we go there, I think would be yeah. great. Um, just closing the loop on the racial bias discussion. Mm -hmm. um, this is like an element of my advocacy that I talk about all the time in different areas of like how facial recognition is used um, when it's used in the criminal justice system is that there absolutely is bias in most facial recognition systems. They work really well for white men and increase increasingly less well, basically, as you run down the privilege spectrum. Uh, that's... Yeah an element of how these systems are designed, right? It's they get fed a lot of images of white men and fewer images of other folks. That's fixable, right? Like you can provide a training database that is a whole, you know, a good spread of people. Um, it seems to not necessarily have been done with the facial liveness for CBP1, um, in part because the British company that designed it probably did not have access to a lot of images of the type of people who would be on the southern border. You're talking about like indigenous Mexican folks, Ishiel mm -hmm. folks, just a, a very large number of, of different ethnicities. Um, mm -hmm. But any bias like that is, as Austin said, sitting on top of a series of other biases, right, of structural biases. And so the result we see with a lot of facial recognition systems and this facial aliveness system in CBP1 is no different, is that a little bit of, even a little bit of bias in how the facial recognition works gets amplified. And it's amplified by social biases. It's amplified by the biases of people who run the system and people who interact with it every day. Uh, and then it's amplified by you know, institutional blindness as well, failure to recognize a problem. 
we had facial recognition systems rolled out since on some level since like the early to, to mid 2000s mm-hmm. and we didn't even know that facial rec- that bias was a problem in any facial recognition system until 2018 so mm-hmm. when you're thinking about and you're hearing about like bias testing and the fact that it's been bias tested those tests are never incredibly reliable because they're not done in the real world they're not done with the people actually using the technology they're done in mm-hmm. a you know controlled setting um, and they're not done by people who have a nuanced understanding of how the technology impacts people. Yeah, I think it's very important to remember that, yeah, there's layers upon layers of bias and they stack to make it harder and harder for certain people coming to the United States to get, again, what's that right? And, and often to just be safe, right? Like some people, especially the less advantaged you are sort of on a global scale, the likely the less safe you are waiting in Mexico uh, to make an appointment for your asylum, right? Like if you if you can't get into a shelter or you're, you're from a group where you don't have community to look out for you, you, you're just that bit more likely to be taken advantage of or have something bad happen to you or your family. So yeah, it, it all stacks up, I guess, to make for a very unfortunate situation for people. Yeah, which means the consequence of having a glitch happen is way mm. higher. Yes, right? I've personally known people who have had terrible consequences from what should have been a very, very straightforward asylum application and, and very easy to process very rapidly. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole mess. And I know I'm trying to speak more to some of the folks who work with African migrants, um, because I think that often, yeah, their stories just don't get told, uh, especially at our Southern border where like, I think obviously there's this, like uh, a lot of people like to report on the border, but not leave New York or, um, DC or wherever they have their studio or newspaper or what have you. And I think it's easy to miss that if you haven't, like Gossard said, like, like been around a lot and seen all these things that stack up on top of one another. But uh, yeah, it's an important topic that we don't, especially as like, I, I know that it doesn't get reported on because everyone likes to report on Ukraine and only Ukraine, but like as more wars in Africa or wars in, um, you know, start people from Myanmar, it, 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 it's very hard for them to get to the Southern border actually from hearing from thousands, maybe different cases where people can't leave Thailand. But uh, again, the system, you know, when you have a whole other alphabet that you're trying to access the system in and it doesn't work for you, then that makes it incredibly difficult for those people. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call a cliffhanger in the podcasting industry because we will be back tomorrow with more on how ICE tracks migrants and how that tracking of migrants can impact other people, people who live with them, people in their communities. Uh, I hope you'll join us then. Thanks. Bye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.